Good morning, church. It is a privilege always to bring to you the Word of God that we might feast upon Christ. We are concluding our series in 2 Thessalonians today, and so I hope that we will be filled with encouragement, that we will be shored up in strength through the Word and through the Spirit, and that Christ will have preeminence among us. I want to very briefly go through what we've covered so far in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, and then we will jump in to, uh, to our conclusion here in this letter. So we've already seen so far that Paul's writing to the church. Again, this is his second letter. This is a church that was born out of persecution. Paul was with them for a very short time and immediately in coming to faith because they received from Paul what the word of God is, and that is God's word. They received it not as if it was from man, but as if it was from God himself. And so a church was established. And immediately they saw persecution and conflict from their kinsmen. And so he wrote his first letter to encourage them and to endure. And the second letter is much like the first. Here we've seen his encouragement and his, uh, his thanksgiving that the Thessalonians were growing in faith and in love in the midst of persecution and affliction. And Paul says that this is actually evidence of God's just judgment because he will afflict those who afflicted the church and he will bring relief to those who were afflicted, that is the church. Not only this, but he gives them to be encouraged and not to be shaken or alarmed that the Lord's day, that is the return of Jesus, has already come because in fact it hadn't. The man of lawlessness must first be revealed. And he says to that end that Christ will indeed kill the man of lawlessness with the power of his breath and he will condemn all those who do not love the truth but believe what is false. Then he gives them a blessing for sanctification in contrast to the judgment of the wicked and of course he asks for their prayers for the ministry of the word and for steadfastness. And then as we saw last week, he warns them against idleness, against not obeying the clear commands of Christ and the teaching of his apostles. And we saw that last week through Pastor Eric's sermon. And so this sermon, we will conclude the letter. We will show how he makes summation of everything he's revealed to them thus far and how there is a an encouragement for the church that belongs to the people of God only. And we will see that later. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of the word of God and we will read and dive in. Second Thessalonians chapter three, starting in verse 13. The word of God reads, as for you brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself 
give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You may be seated. Father, thank you for the word that has been given to us. We praise you that you have sent us your son, the living word. We trust that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that we have seen you in seeing Christ. And I pray now that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see you more clearly and behold you, for you are worthy of all prayer, all praise, all adoration, all worship, all majesty. Lord, would your glory fill the heavens, for indeed it does. Would you rule and reign in our midst? And I pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds today, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, your son. I pray this according to the power that is given to us through your spirit and according to the grace that is ours in the gospel. Amen. All right, I ha this sermon, if you're taking notes, is titled Perseverance and Peace. Perseverance and Peace. And first, first point is persevering in good, persevering in good. Verse 13 says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. This phrase, as for you, Paul is setting up a contrast because he's already warned against those who are not willing to work. He says just earlier, and again, we, we looked at this last week. He says just earlier for, in verse 11, for we hear that some among you Walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their own work quietly and to earn their own living. In fact, he goes as far as to say in verse 10 that if someone's not willing to work, then they also should not eat. That there are repercussions to actions, right? Actions have consequences always. And so... There's an immediate contrast set up in verse 13. As for you, meaning because you are not like these people or should not be like them, do not grow weary in doing good. This is actually the third of three distinctions made throughout the letter. These distinctions are between the righteous and the unrighteous, and there's one in each chapter. In chapter one, we see this distinction, that there is, that God will give affliction to those who afflict versus relief for those who are afflicted. So the Lord's going to judge those who have caused affliction to the church and he will bring relief to the saints at Thessalonica in the here and now, but ultimately in, on the last day when Christ is revealed. And there's another distinction made in chapter 2 we see that delusion and condemnation belongs to those who do not love the truth and believe what is false. All right, you can see that 9 through 12, chapter 2. Versus salvation and glory for those who are sanctified by the Spirit and believe in the truth. That's in verses 13 through 15. And this last distinction, this last distinction is made. Again, one, one distinction for each chapter. That there belongs hunger and judgment to those who meddle and who refuse to work versus 
peace at all times and in every way for those who persevere in doing good. And so the charge to us, if we want to be on the right side of the distinction, if we want to be on the side of Christ, if we want to belong to him and be identified as his church, then the charge is given to us, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. So what is the good? What is the good? Well, I'm going to give it in the context of the letter. I would encourage you to read the whole Bible and write down every good thing that Christians are called to do, that they ought to do. But for the sake of brevity, we'll look at just this letter. First, we see that the good is having faith in love, not only having it, but growing in faith and love in the midst of persecution. All right, that's chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Also, to have resolutions for good, right? To have a resolve, to say within yourself, because I belong to Christ, I will commit my hands to good things. I will commit my mind to good things. I will commit my lips to good things. I have committed myself to the good. I will not be a participant in evil, but I will do that which is holy and set apart because Christ is holy and set apart and has called me accordingly, okay? That is in, that's also, excuse me, in chapter one, verse 11. Chapter one, verse 11. To that end, Philippians two says this, right? Because this is a resolve to do good And not only a resolve, but the ability to do it. Paul writes to the church at Philippi that he says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he's calling the church at Philippi to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. It's this sense in which put it to the test, exercise it. Do you believe you belong to Christ? Exercise it. Let, it, let the fruits of that salvation be seen and known by you and by all. If you are unsure of your salvation, either two things are, that's because of two things. Either you've unfortunately been discipled very poorly and you've been caught in bad theology. This is common, particularly in the Bible Belt. And so you don't understand what imputed righteousness really means, or or you simply don't belong to Christ because there's no fruit, no evidence whatsoever. The Bible says test yourself because you ought to be able to see it, and others ought to be able to see it. And so, and that's not a, a place for pride or ego, but rather an assurance of knowing I belong to Christ. He is my righteousness, and therefore my life will bear fruit. I'm confident he will bear it in me because I belong to him. He is my everything, right? And so Paul says to them, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But again, it's not you necessarily doing the work. It's availing yourself to it because it is God who both He works in you both to will, that means to desire, to resolve a resolve for it, and to work for his good pleasure. So he will give you both a resolve to do it and the ability to do it. Praise God. Praise God. And so the good then is a resolution for good things, as we saw in Philippians. And then not only that, same verse, works of faith. Works of faith. Faith requires action. 
It's born out of the heart. But if you really believe something with your heart and with your mind, it will change how you live. It has to. It has to. It's not real if it doesn't. In fact, the entire drama of Scripture assumes as much. This is why, this is why Noah, by faith, built the ark. Noah, by faith, built the ark. Abraham, by faith, gave up his promised son. By faith. And it was by that faith he was declared righteous. But the faith had to be proved. Not only that, it was by faith that Moses stood up to Pharaoh and became a redeemer for his people, a savior for his people. All by faith, because faith requires something. Jesus says as much in John 14, 21, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. If you want to know whether or not you love Jesus and believe in him, this is a simple litmus test. It's very simple. We overcomplicate it. You read his word and you do everything within you to obey it and trust him to work out the details, trust him to work out your failures, trust him to establish righteousness in you because he is your righteousness and so you give him your everything. You give him your everything. You simply read his word and obey it. That's faith. You don't have to think, well, does this really mean this? Does he really want me to do this? If it says it, then we do it. That's faith. That's faith. And so, we have to be those kind of people, those kind of people. James, Jesus' half-brother, says as much. He says, don't just be hearers of the word, but doers, but doers. How do I know that you have faith? By seeing the fruit of your doing. We can't just be hearers. We have to be doers. That's in chapter 1, verse 11. Again, what's, what is the good? The, sec, the next thing would be endurance. Endurance. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, Paul writes to the church, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. How? How? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. In the same section, the next good that we ought to be giving ourselves to is keeping the traditions of the apostles because he says stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter, or by our letter. We have the traditions of the church here, here. We, we know the apostolic preaching of the, the New Testament because it's all here. We know how the saints of old walked in faithfulness. We see it all. We know how the forefathers of Israel set apart their families unto Christ and walked accordingly by teaching their children the law of the Lord. We see it all. And Paul says, do good by standing firm, 
continuing in the truth and holding to the traditions we've taught you. The world is always changing, but the word of God is timeless. It's timeless. It always holds authority in all things. It is not only inerrant, which means it is without fault, but it is, or it contains no error, but it's also infallible, meaning it cannot be at fault. The word of God will never be at fault. These are the traditions we hold, and we can also learn to the traditions that have come after the writing of this book. We can look to saints of old and see how they persevered in the midst of a culture and a world that hated them, how they fought against tyranny, how they fought against secularism. There's much to be learned as the people of God, and Paul charges us with just as much. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. And so we must endure. We must endure. Next, the good that we do is what we saw last week. We work quietly and earn our own living. We work quietly and earn our own living. Put succinctly, this means be responsible live in fear before the Lord knowing that he has made us and designed us to live in a particular way because he has designed the world in a particular way and we must give ourselves to that design we must give ourselves to that design and so that work that we do that quiet work that we do will look different for for Men who lead the household, it's being out in the sphere of society and working hard that you might provide and set an example to your countrymen. To mothers, it is building a home that your children are nourished in Christ and that is a haven for them and is a signpost to the world that this, this is what a Christian home looks like. To children, it means being diligent to honor your mother and your father to learn all that you can that you might grow as an individual and might honor Christ with everything you put your mind your hands and your lips to and we do it to earn a living and this this is not an, a charge to amass a, a ton of wealth there's so many warnings against obscene wealth in the scriptures but we also don't have to be afraid of the simple fruit of working hard and the Lord blessing it. We don't have to be afraid of it. But we don't get in other people's business. We don't mind the world. I think we need to be wise about things, but interestingly enough, Paul tells the church at Rome that be wise about what is good and ignorant to what is evil. We don't have to worry ourselves about all the things the world worries itself over. We certainly must be witnesses and bear testimony to righteousness because we are a people who have righteousness in Christ, but we don't have to meddle in the affairs of the world, nor do we meddle in the affairs of one another. Can't be busybodies. So these are the good things that he's saying in verse 13. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not, in other words, do not grow weary in doing these things, these things in growing in faith and love, in having a resolve for good, in working 
out your faith in enduring all circumstances, in keeping the traditions, and in working quietly. Don't, don't grow weary in these things. Verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. That he may be ashamed. That he may be ashamed. We're going to tease that out, but just very, very quickly, we want to go back. I want to set that there, and we're going to go back so that what we say kind of, there's fullness to it. Our next point is warning, warning in love. We have to diligently, because of this verse, right? If anyone does not obey, take note of that person. We must diligently watch ourselves and one another. Galatians 6 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, notice that, if anyone is caught in any transgression, it doesn't matter what it is, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This language, you who are spiritual, you'd have to read Galatians 5 to, I mean, it's not, it's not separate. You're, if you're reading a whole letter, right, remember that when you, when you read sections of Scripture. It has context. And in Galatians 5 in particular, he sets up, what does it mean to live by the Spirit? to be filled with him and to not only live by the Spirit, but to walk step in step with the Spirit. And so I'd encourage you to read Galatians 5 today. But he's saying, you who are spiritual, because if you belong to Christ, he's given you his Spirit. He's given it to you. You, you have to be spiritual. It, there's no real choice in the matter. If you choose not to be spiritual, you're rejecting Christ. And so you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So, in other words, we have to pay attention to ourselves, keep eye on ourselves, but also on others because we belong to one another. This is different than being a busybody. A busybody is a gossip. They meddle. They create division. They have no intent on seeing a brother or sister restored, but rather they like the division, the hostility, it feeds something in them. They're entertained by it. This is the world in which we live, by the way. Gossip is rampant. But we look, to, we look and watch ourselves and we watch one another out of love because we want to see Christ formed in us as a people. I want to see Christ formed in myself. I want to see Christ formed in you. And so I watch you. It's not just the obligation of a pastor, though it's a special obligation for sure but it is given to all of us to pay attention to one another and so we do it we take note of a person who does not obey what's written in the word furthermore it says we have nothing to do with them that they might be ashamed so let me reiterate because we are obligated to watch one another and bear one another's burdens. And as Paul wrote in the previous letter, we are to seek one another's good. 
And you have to ask the question, what is someone's ultimate good? What is their ultimate good? It's this, that they glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's that they recognize their maker and confess to belonging to him in Christ alone by faith. This is someone's ultimate good. Of all the good things we could be doing for one another and for our neighbors, the ultimate good is seeing Christ formed in them and speaking accordingly. This is why we must speak the truth in love always. And so, as it, belong, as it concerns us as a family, we warn each other. Hopefully we do a lot of encouraging, right? Encouraging. But we also need to warn one another in love. We admonish one another in love. And we speak the truth to one another in love. We don't recoil at it. We don't shy away from it. But we do it because I want to see Christ formed in us. That he might rule and reign in our midst. That we might be a people actually sanctified, set apart for his purposes. And as such, if, if anyone does not obey what is said in this letter, take note of that person. I want you to take, consider this. Verse 14 seems to suggest that this person does not obey by choice. Here's why. They first heard the command in person. We know that because in verse 10, it says, Paul says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. So they've already heard the command specifically to work and to work faithfully. They heard it in person, okay? And they haven't done it. And now they have read the command in the letter. They've read the command in the letter. And yet they still disobey. Therefore, they are unrepentant. They're unrepentant. And this isn't specific to just working, but you can look at this in any sense of the commands of Christ because the New Testament's replete with it. It's replete with it. If anyone refuses Christ over and over and over again, they are unrepentant and therefore we reject them. The language truly means to shun them to shun them. That means in every way, shape, and form, we reject them, that they may be ashamed. We're going to unpack this a little, but It'll make sense in, in, a, in a second. Verse 15 says, Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is almost an assault on our senses of what it means to be family. How is it we reject them, but we also consider them a sibling? How? Why rejection? Why? This is why. There is a high standard in the family of God. There are house rules, so to speak. And they're not of my making. They're not of our making. They are given to us by God. And it is because this person is professing Christ that we hope for them to actually be in the family and therefore 
we have nothing to do with him. If someone is an enemy of the cross, and they have always been, we are obligated to speak the truth to them, to declare Christ and his kingdom to them, but should they reject it, we have no, no obligation remains, no more obligation remains. We have, in the words of Ezekiel, we've washed our hands of their blood. I have no more responsibility to them. And yet, for the one that claims to belong to Christ, we have a particular responsibility to them because they're saying, I'm a brother or I'm a sister. And we're saying, if you know him, then you will love him. And if you love him, you will obey him because he's called us to faithful obedience always. And we reject as siblings because we want Christ formed in them. Them being ashamed of their sin is meant to lead them to repentance. Repentance is the goal, that they might be restored first to Christ and second to us. And so we must reject them. Not only that, but if they refuse Christ and his word, then no fellowship remains because Christ is the foundation of all our relating to one another. I'm going to unpack this further in the next section, but it's worth saying now. No, no kind of relating exists. And so what this, this is what this means. If we have removed someone from our midst and they remain unrepentant, there is no catching up. There's no being friends. There's no eating together. There's, there's simply no relationship. The only thing that remains is that we bear witness to Christ and his kingdom to them that they might repent and believe, and we call them to repentance. So I would even say in the day and age in which we live, if we've removed someone from this fellowship, delete their Facebook friendship. It doesn't, I mean, why are we spying on them? right? There's, no, there's nothing to be said. There's nothing, there's nothing to say except repent and believe. We do not relate to them anymore. This is simply what it says, have nothing to do with them. God's word, not mine. Have nothing to do with them. They no longer concern us except for our prayers that they might repent. because the name of Jesus Christ is at stake. And then our last point, our last point, which we'll spend some time with. Verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Our last point, kept in peace. Kept in peace. So I made, again, if you're taking notes, I made it easy. I, I might have not told you one of the points, but persevering in good was the first one. Warning in love was the second one. Kept in peace is the last one. Kept in peace. This is a blessing that we might have peace always. And this peace comes from the Lord of peace. Notice that it says, as, excuse me, thou, now the, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. 
give you peace. That is the church. It's the same you from verse 13. As for you, it's part of this distinction being made. The third distinction in the letter. The third distinction. This peace is for us that belong to God in Christ. It belongs to no one else. Here's why. Because God is the God of peace. And as such, this is true. In Ephesians 2, we see this, starting in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Paul speaking to both Jews and Gentiles. Because there was animosity intri- intrinsic to their identities. Jews were Jews, the set-apart people of God. Gentiles were strangers to God and his covenant promises. And he's saying the mystery of the gospel is this, that he saves not only the covenant people of Israel, but he's making a new covenant in which Gentiles are invited in. And this hostility cannot remain, but it's first born out of peace with God because our hostility as sinners, as rebels against a holy, righteous God, that hostility has been put to death in the death of Christ. And so there is hope for every single person in this room. There is hope that you might be reconciled to your maker because Jesus bore your hostility on the cross that you might know him and belong to him. And in reconciling us first to himself, he has reconciled us to one another. But this one another only belongs truly to those who are in Christ. There is a vertical relationship that must first be established for the horizontal to be real. And so how we relate to one another is rooted in Christ. It's rooted in Christ. We even see this in the call of Abraham, in the call for him to sacrifice Isaac. He was called to give up the promised one. And only when he was willing at the very last to say, yes, he's yours, did he actually receive him back. But this time he received him back as the, chi- as the true child of promise. And the promise that the Lord would provide was given. And so everything we have is only ours. And every relationship, every, every possession, whatever it is, it's only ours when it's first ours in Christ. It doesn't belong to us, nor is it given for us to have unless it's first rooted in Christ because he is our life. Because he is our life. And so again, this first stream of peace happens vertically between God and us, God and man. And because of that, we now have a horizontal peace, man to man. You could even intersect the two, if you will, because unless the vertical is established, the horizontal does not exist. And so 
as I mentioned earlier, we're going to unpack this. This is why. This is why our relating to people has to be informed and guided by Christ and by his word. A Christian's deepest and most personal relationships cannot be with unbelievers. It's not that you can't be friends with unbelievers. I would encourage you to do so. Jesus himself was a friend of sinners. But to have this relationship where you share your deepest, your deepest passions and desires or insecurities, whatever they may be, or whatever it looks like, or to have a spouse, you cannot have that if you belong to Christ and they don't. Now, there is an exception, and I'm just going to say it so there's not confusion. If you come to faith later in life after already being married, scriptures make very clear, do your best. If they're willing to stay, do your best to stay with them for the sake of your children. But, but, if you are unmarried and you belong to Christ, you cannot relate to unbelievers in this way. What fellowship do you have with them? What fellowship do you have with them? This is also why Jesus gives this very, very hard saying in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me, these are Jesus' words, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You don't get to keep those things unless they're given to you in Christ because you first belong to him. And therefore, the peace that we have is rooted in him and the peace that we proclaim is also rooted in him. This is true peace. It's true peace. It's real. It's not the peace that so many ideologues in our world want to establish like lack of war or something peace for all mankind those ideals are seemingly noble but when you really look at them they're ignorant and despicable because they want to establish a peace of man on man's terms in man's ways and we know man to be sinners true peace must first be established in Christ and this is true peace, it's, et- it's eternal even, because it's rooted in the Trinitarian Godhead. This peace has been established in the Father pardoning, pardoning us and receiving us completely based on the person and work of Christ his Son. And his, it's his spirit that's pouring out this peace and the love therein from the Godhead into our very own hearts. This is a Trinitarian peace that has existed before the foundations of the world. And we, as sinners, have been hostile to him from birth. Because of sin, death has spread to all. And that death is a just consequence to our hostility and rebellion to a good God. And yet, Christ has crushed the hostility. He has killed it for us because he took it on himself. And because of that, this peace is for 
us as the church. It cannot be for unbelievers. This is the second half of that third distinction I've mentioned. Because this peace is for us, it's not for those who afflict us. It's not for those who do not believe the truth and take pleasure in unrighteousness. It's not for those who meddle and refuse to work. The blessing of peace is ours, is ours as we abide in him because he is with us all. He's with us all. This is again why Paul writes this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand, meaning he's near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is good news. And this is the blessing that Paul is giving us. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. It's ours. And not only is it ours, but Christ himself brings it to us because we belong to him. He himself establishes it. He inaugurates it. He confirms it. And he pours it out on us because we are his and he is ours. So in conclusion, as we draw to, a, to an end here, as is evident by this letter, the church, the church, is a people who are chosen and set apart by God the Father in Christ the Son through the Holy Spirit. As set apart people, we must live accordingly. To us, it is given to do these things, to grow in faith and love no matter the circumstance, to have resolve for good, to pursue works of faith, to stand firm in belief to the truth and to hold to the traditions and to work quietly and mind our own business. Those things are given to us. The charge is ours to do those things and to not grow weary in them. Furthermore, as Christ set apart people, we must walk in God's peace and declare his peace in Christ. We declare it. It's ours, but it is also the gift to anyone who will repent and believe. And so we walk in it and we declare it faithfully. To those that receive the truth, we welcome them as family. But to those that reject the offer of peace in Christ, we must also acknowledge that they have rejected us. And so we have nothing more to do with them. We have nothing more to do with them. As such, Paul writes this, very last verse, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray. Worthy are you, Lord Jesus, of all honor, worship, majesty, and glory. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It all belongs to you. 
And so we live not as those who pursue the flesh or pursue the world and its vices, but we avail ourselves to you because you are worthy of our faith and our obedience. And I pray that you would rule and reign in our midst, that you would establish your kingdom here in Brattleboro as it is in heaven, and that we would be servants of you in your kingdom. Would we always bear the burden and responsibility of one another? Would we grow in faith and in love? And would you be our highest and greatest love always? That everything we do would be for you. Every relationship we have would be rooted in you. Every word we speak would come from the overflow of knowing you and your word. Lord, we want to be a church that casts itself over and over and over again on the rock of our salvation. And we want to build our houses on the rock and be like the wise man. And so, Lord, have mercy on us as your people that we might walk in your wisdom and in your ways and that you would establish your righteousness in our hearts and in our minds and by the works of our hands. Would, my, would you be glorified in us and through us, Lord Jesus? I pray all this in your great name. Amen.